bringing European SaaS together was the initial premise for SaaS Talk. Even in its first year, we outgrew that proposition with attendees from over 30 countries, making it a global conference with a European heart. SaaS Talk will be returning to Dublin in October 2022, and our super early bird tickets are on sale now, saving you 400 euros. Grab yours by visiting sastock.com forward slash sastock dash 2022. There's no point planning for an exit unless you've actually built a good business in the the first place. It's just a just a waste of time and quite honestly a, a distraction. But overall, I'd say founders are definitely more aware of exit options because it's just it's in absolute terms today compared to ten years ago. There are more founders that have sold software companies and SaaS companies, more investors come into the space, uh, whether they're kind of as VCs, angels, or outright acquisitions. Um, and that, that's not going to slow down anytime soon. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaS Talk, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution show. Thomas Mayle, CEO and co-founder of FE International. Welcome, Thomas. Hey, Alex. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Good to have you on the podcast. Uh, is it the first time that you're on, on the SaaS Revolution show podcast? I think it is the first time on podcast, yeah. Okay, good. To, uh, well, good to have you on the first time. I think I know we've been speaking about it for a while, um, uh, but and you're a, a veteran of SaaS dot conferences uh, in person, both in Europe and uh, the US, maybe Asia as well. I've been to um, all, of, all of them, everywhere in the world. Oh well, uh, <laughs> uh, good. We'll have a. Um, we need to kind of give some badges as like uh, uh, speakers that have spoken at the most SaaS dot conferences, and I think probably you and Patrick Campbell uh, would be up there uh, for sure. Um, probably followed by you know people like April Dunford and uh, others, but. Um, uh, uh, definitely, uh, that, that's great. To see, obviously, we're, we we've had a uh, a fallow two years of no SaaS conferences in person. We've done you know plenty of virtual. Uh, in fact, uh, obviously, we've got SaaS coming up next week. Although this will likely be published uh, after that. Uh, but the good news is uh, SaaS coming back in Dublin, uh, October 2022, for perhaps the the biggest SaaS event ever to uh, have uh, been seen in Europe. Um, so excited for that uh, and that will be another one for uh, for UNFE uh, International to, uh, to to be at and uh, be a great week SaaS Society as well but Thomas for those that don't know you tell us a little bit about yourself like who is Thomas Mayle? Sure so I'm the CEO of FE International and I founded the company in um, t- 2010 um, as you can tell from the accent I'm English but I live in uh, San Francisco most of our team now are in the US um, although started the company in London, um, and as my as uh, I guess FE International, the name suggests, we are very much an international company. So our head office now is um, New York. We have a team in London. Uh, we have office in Miami, office in San Francisco, or in in the Bay Area. Um, and then we have a, f- a few remote team members at the stage as well. So we're really all over. Um, but yeah, I, I've been here for five years now in the US, and I guess this has now become permanent home. So it's so not coming back to the UK. Uh, not anytime soon. And then obviously with travel restrictions at the moment, it's been difficult for the last couple of years as well. But like FE International, what does it do? Why did you start the business? Yeah, so we're a 
M&A firm or mergers and acquisitions, which is really just a fancy term for we help people sell their company or exit their business. When I started the company in 2010, nothing like Effie International really existed for SaaS e-commerce content-based businesses, which are the main, main business models we focus on and then any derivatives of that. Back in 2010, SaaS wasn't even really a thing. Most people didn't even really know what SaaS was. I don't think I knew what SaaS was. There were definitely some early starters out there. But back in back in 2010, most of the time, if you bought SaaS, you wouldn't really be buying SaaS. You'd be buying a software product. And it was usually a one-time or an annual license. It was usually downloadable or like a desktop software or something like that. Um, so at the time, the industry didn't exist. We've never done M&A for anything else. So we were very, very early when there were no other firms you could hire to help you sell a software-based business. Nowadays, if you look at it in in 2021, if you're new to the industry this year, you wouldn't really realize what it was like 10 years ago. But the industry has changed changed a lot. But yeah, we started on in, in the early days, kind of figuring out the industry and kind of a lot of the comps in the industry that people see today were set by us. People now realize you can sell a business because we were very early in the in in the space selling SaaS companies, e-commerce content, whatever it it, it might be, um, and that's like really grown the industry. And nowadays, like the the ecosystem is huge. Like events like SaaS stock, you have a huge community of founders, investors, of executives of SaaS companies. Um, and like I said, ten years ago, that didn't didn't exist. It wasn't wasn't a thing. So as the industry's grown, we've also grown. We're now over a hundred people, uh, various places in the world. Um, most of our business is M and A, but we also do things like we publish a magazine called SaaS Mag. Um, we've also, over the years, bought and operated companies companies ourselves in the in the space, um, which we've always done. As we figured that if you're going to hire someone to provide a service, you actually much more credible if you've actually been there and done it yourself with your own money. So it's very much what what we've done along the way as well. Um, but the primary thing we do is help people sell their business. Um, we work on businesses anywhere up to a hundred million in valuation, and we're beginning to see even like going above that at the moment, which is definitely something that's increased as well. If you spoke to me five years ago, I probably would have said the upper limit was maybe twenty million. And people didn't even really know we did deals at that level. But now it's more like 100. We're going to have multiple deals close this year in the the mid-eight figure range um, and possibly some in the nine figure range as well. So definitely, I guess, an exciting time for us and the industry as well because it's just continuously growing. So I guess benefits you and Sastock as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like uh, I'd say that... For SaaS stock, and, and, and maybe it, it, it's similar for for you guys, but um, a, a big reason, you know, for our success, and, and not the only reason, but you know, one is timing, you know, which is always important, uh, you know, and two is, is is the market, right, and the growth of the market, and us kind of r- riding that wave, and SaaS has just really, you know, I mean, it, it's been exploding over the, you know the last kind of few years, so that for us, you know, positioned as we are, is um, you know, is really great for us to be be in such a healthy market. Um, is it there? Um, uh, so, in, in terms, are you, I don't know if you're allowed to share uh, this sort of information. Uh, 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 so, sort of familiar with the, the M and A world, but like any clients, any deals that you've kind of like worked on, 
that you, you know are sort of notable and that I'm sure there are notable but you know that maybe some of the listeners would know you know these companies but I, I don't know if, uh, how it works um, uh, from that side yeah I think that well so firstly over the years we've closed about 1100 or just over 1100 deals in total well over a billion dollars in combined valuation I think this is one of the big misconceptions actually the vast majority of deals that happen you never hear anything about they're completely private we sign confidentiality agreements the buyer and seller sign confidentiality agreements um there's a, a lot of not necessarily misinformation but i guess because of the nature of press people see deals that do get publicly announced and assume that if a deal was not publicly announced it never happened um so i would say at least 90 percent of the deals we work on never get announced at all so people don't people don't talk about them um we have like various deals that are public and that people will talk about um depending on the strategy of the acquirer uh sometimes acquirers like to take over a business and keep it quiet because they want to be they don't want it to be disruptive to uh clients team members investors whoever it might be um involved but there, there can also be advantages of announcing a sale like um so we just completed the sale of a business called newer media um which is i think being publicly announced today because i was just looking at the the, the press release and that's a um like a, a software company that helps website owners generate more revenue from their website with rotating various like advertising partners it's a very complex complex product for a very specific audience which is website owners helps them increase their um revenue the reason that deal was announced specifically is the acquirers come in and their approach is they're going to add more resource. Um, the whole team are staying on. Uh, some of the team have got like pay rises and there's more resource coming into the business. They can now sign up for like various products they've been wanting to use for a, a long time. Uh, whereas the previous owner who did a great job and he's had a like owned the business all himself. Um, I've worked with him for years, years ago. The first business we ever sold to him, I think, was like fifty thousand dollars, and now th this deal was a, a mid eight figure exit that he's one hundred percent himself, no outside investors, purely bootstrap. So it's a great success story, I guess, in the world of uh, software companies or ad tech, depending how you categorize the 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 business. So the story for him it, is great, but for the team it's also great because um, they now have more resource, they keep their job. Um, it makes sense to announce that deal because in the world of it, it, in that industry, it kind of adds confidence to potential customers. If they know there's uh, not necessarily cash behind a business, but there's resource and experience behind who they're going to be potentially working with. So that was one we just announced, but like I said, vast majority of deals don't get announced at all, which I guess in a selfish way makes our job difficult because we can't, we can't say, well, here's a list of 1100 we sold. Um, although I would say over the last few, year, few years, as the industry's grown, I think more and more buyers and sellers are now open to deals being made um, public. I guess part of the reason we operate SASMAG is in SASMAG, we um, regularly will interview uh, founders who have successfully sold or maybe people on the other side of the table who have successfully bought um, and talk about their strategies behind it. So I think similar to the industry growing, people are definitely getting more open to it. I think there's a bit of a growing trend of, I think you, the, the tagline would probably be like build in public. 
it's more common that people are transparent about what they're doing in their business. And I guess if you've built your business in a very transparent way, when you then sell it, it makes sense that you would kind of disclose and talk about the deal. Um, whereas 10 years ago, when I started, it was all secretive. No one would ever talk about deals. I think it probably took three or four years into FE until anyone even spoke about a deal um, publicly. So trends are definitely changing. Um, but yeah, the vast majority still stay private, at least for a while, because most of the disruption and acquisition, if there is any, is in the first few months post-sale. So often we had a deal announced the other day, but it closed a year and a half ago. But at this stage, the buyer's happy, the seller's happy, uh, the team are happy. Um, so it made sense to announce. You see like Zoom acquired 5.9, but then, you know, and that was all public and there's a big song and dance and probably lots of people in 5.9, maybe including the, the, the CEO, were quite happy and they were looking at this, you know, exit sort of paycheck. And then for, you know, whatever reasons, the regulators have said, well, this is not, you know, going through and the deal is dead. And then what is the impact of that then on on the company and on the founder saying, oh, you know, fuck, basically like uh, this 5 billion exit or whatever the the price was, you know, is not going to happen and how disruptive that could have been, right? So I guess to, to that point, there could be examples. Have you had anything or seen, you know, anything similar to that, which has not been like public companies? Yeah, so I'd say, firstly, part of the reason it's all kept confidential is, I'd say, generally speaking, the more people that know about a deal or are involved in a deal, the more likely it is to fall apart, whether that's other advisors or employees or just stakeholders in the deal. Um, generally, the less people involved, um, the better. We don't get involved in too many deals that have regulatory challenges. Like as much as I'd love to say we do, we don't work on $5 billion transactions. So we're often not running into any um, regulatory issues. But one thing we do in almost all deals, very sensitive about employees finding out a business is for sale. Um, so they will almost never know until the deal has happened um, unless they are key members of management. So if it's like C-level or operations manager roles like that, where the buyer kind of needs to meet them as part of the, the diligence process, um, they will. Um, I'd say it's reasonably unlikely or uncommon for a deal to fall apart at that stage when the, the, the teams meet, because I guess a big part of M&A and a big part of why you hire a firm like us rather than just trying to sell a business yourself is we will bring enough buyers to the table where you can pick a buyer who's the best fit. It's not all about the person or the, the business that will pay the most for your company. It's also about finding someone who's a cultural fit. So if you if you work with the best, so the new media deal that I mentioned, the acquirer in that case met the COO who's staying with the business before the sale, uh, really liked her. She liked the team coming in. Um, and then she's helped share the message with the team internally that she manages after the deal has happened. And as, at least as far as I know, no one in the company's left. Everyone's happy. Everyone's like super excited by the future. So I guess cultural alignment of the buyer is important. Um, so obviously I don't know what happened happened in the zoom and five nine deal behind the scenes but you're probably right there are probably some people internally or even externally who weren't happy for various reasons and there's i guess lots of ways and excuses to get out of deals if people get cold feet or there are other issues so maybe it was regulatory but i think the skeptic in me would say there's probably more to it than than just that hence why we keep things as like as quiet and as private as we can and a big part of what we do is 
is maintaining confidentiality. So most of our listeners are, are not uh, CEOs of public companies, but, uh, you know, much earlier stage. And uh, you specifically, you know, FE International, help SaaS companies sell their companies. Um, but as we're talking about, I think, you, you know, in general kind of exits here for, uh, for today's kind of podcast, but in your opinion, you know, do founders or, you know, are they already thinking about like the future exit when they're launching that company? Is that just something like inherent with the founder, even though they kind of say, well, no, we're not, you know, we're building hundred year companies and we're not thinking about the exit because inevitably most either exit or, you know, shut down the companies and they're not running these businesses for 20, 30 years. Right. Yeah. I, I think today, like compared to 10 years ago, people are definitely thinking about it more. I think part of that is just, like I said, more and more deals have now been announced and like the kind of building public trends. The fact conferences exist, like the nature of conferences, it's social. So if you go to an event like Sastock, you'll meet many people who have sold their companies or thinking about selling their companies. So I guess you kind of have the, the social proof and people are like, oh, well, maybe I should sell as well. 10 years ago, there were definitely less people who would think about it because there was way, obviously people have been selling businesses for for all of history, that that's not changed. But things like SaaS companies specifically, there were not a huge number of exits at that stage. Um, if they were, they were like very uncommon or very large. Um, much smaller businesses um, were, were much less common to change hands or anyone to know about. So say today, people are definitely more aware of it. Um, I'd say in terms of like founders thinking about what their exit should be, I think it, it, it depends. Um, I think a lot of people, it depends a lot if it's their first or second company. If they've sold a company before or run a company before and this is their second business, they'll often have more of a goal. I think for most founders starting out, my experience is they're more concerned about quitting their job or making it a full-time thing or like building a good business before they're thinking about selling. Because if quite honestly you're thinking about exit strategy before you've even launched your business and you haven't managed to quit your job yet or if you're trying to get investment you've not raised investment yet or whatever it might be uh then you're probably going about it wrong i think you need to focus on there's no point planning for an exit unless you've actually built a good business in the the first place it's just a just a waste of time and quite honestly a, a distraction but overall i'd say founders are definitely more aware of exit options because it's just it's in absolute terms Today, compared to 10 years ago, there are more founders that have sold software companies and SaaS companies, more investors come into the space, uh, whether they're kind of as VCs, angels, or outright acquisitions. Um, and that, that's not going to slow down anytime soon as I guess the SaaS industry, I think you and I would both agree, if you look at it over the next 50 years, it's almost guaranteed that it's going to grow year on year. I think there's almost, almost no doubt about that. Um, so the industry is only going to grow. Given you've done over 1,100 M&A deals, you've obviously got good data and insights there. And so what do you see? What are the patterns? Like, you know, what stage, you, you know, and, and when, what, you know, what reasons the companies come to FE to sell their business, SaaS business? You know, is it at year five, we predominantly see that, you know, most founders get tired and want to sell their business. And at a certain revenue, people just kind of like, you know, give up or they're not growing fast enough. So what what's some of the... The patterns around that and reasons yeah so say it's usually very personal um so i guess those personal reasons can really vary 
Um, in most cases, the catalyst is the business has got um, to a stage where to grow it further, the, the business owner would need to do or, or make commitments they're maybe not comfortable with. So it, it, if you're quite small, it might be hiring your first employee. Um, I always say to people, like, if you're going to start a business, like before you hire your first employee, that's a very big decision because once you hire someone, assuming you're ethical, you are then responsible for that person. You have to pay them. They probably have family, mortgage, kids, whatever. You can't just decide one day to give up on your business and let everyone go. That's, that's not really how it how it works. Um, so committing to hiring first employees is obviously a, a, a big step. Some people don't want to do that. Um, sometimes when you get larger than that, it might be to break into the the next. We're working on a deal at the moment. The, the next it's a substantial eight-figure business to break into the next level so i guess to build a nine-figure business they would have to transition from effectively self-service SaaS into enterprise um and quite honestly the founders have no interest in doing anything enterprise related they don't want to build a sales team they are technical developers themselves it's not something they want to do um so often it's like a per i guess a combination of personal and professional i don't want to or i could not do the thing to get it to the the next level so then it generally makes sense to to sell if you can't grow it anymore um sometimes it's literally just a personal decision in terms of um opportunity cost so i launched another business or i'm thinking about launching another business and i think this one will do better therefore i'm going to sell the current business i own so i can i can focus i think most business owners or founders will know that trying to run two companies at once or even two products at once is, is difficult and you probably don't give uh, one or the other the attention it deserves. Um, and then I guess like the most common personal reason when it comes down to it is just your business hits the number that you're willing to sell for, whether that's 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, 100 million, that number varies with everyone. But I'd say we do a lot of deals anecdotally in the five to $20 million range, which for most people, well, for almost everybody, it's, it's life-changing. You probably never have to work again if you don't want to. So that, um, I guess, it's very common for someone's number to be in that that range, particularly if they own all the business themselves or maybe they have a business partner, um, they can exit and then you set up a foundation for whether you want to launch another business, whether you want to take some time off, whatever it might be so yeah i'd say that five to 20 million is very common if you say to most people most entrepreneurs like what's your number say so most people name a number in that range you'll obviously get people who will name higher numbers as well but the way i kind of explain it to my team when i'm training them about negotiating deals um as much as i think people on paper might think oh they want a hundred million dollars it, it's not actually that easy to walk away from 20 million if someone is literally going to give you 20 million to buy your business, like it's, you have to be very disciplined to walk away and say no. Hence why so many people were willing to sell, not necessarily below market value, like you still get a really good deal, but sell when you hit 10, 15, 20 million. Yeah. 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 20 million is uh, uh, a good number. I think, as you say, but it'd be pretty difficult uh, if assuming that most people have never had that offer. Uh, in their lives before to like go home, think about it, talk about it with your husband or wife and say, Hey, you know, I've been offered 20 minutes to sell, sell the business. Um, yeah, you've got to, 
be pretty tough uh, uh, to to kind of walk away from that, right? Um, yeah, for, for um, sure. Yeah. Um, thinking about like then generally just the planning for this the, this exit, sort of like long term. What are the best practices that you can share uh, around thinking long term? You know, for uh, for planning for an exit. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it kind of follows on quite nicely as well. So, so the first thing is, to my previous point, you have to figure out personally what you're trying to achieve and what you're willing to do. Because if you are, you want to build a billion dollar business, but you have no interest in managing people, then you're that doesn't really make sense. You can't, you probably can't build a billion dollar business with no employees. It's just not possible unless you have a business partner or you hire executives who are willing to do all that for you. But even then you still have to managing people. So I think you have to early on establish what you're actually trying to achieve because the advice I would give you if you're trying to build a hundred million dollar business is different from a million dollar business. Um, the, the second part would be, and this is something we do with people at all stages, get evaluation early on to establish where you are. Because again, to my point about what are you willing to do in terms of work, some people could be willing to work 100 hours a week for 10 years and they're willing to basically do anything it takes to grow their business. But that doesn't necessarily mean they will succeed. Uh, so you have to be realistic about valuation as well. So get evaluation early and then that will help set a foundation for what you need to do and achieve and how you set your goals. Because if you are at, say, a million dollar valuation today and you want to get to $20 million valuation, there's probably quite a lot that needs to happen or, or change or improve within the business to get to that $20 million number. But if you're at, say, a million today and you want to get to 2 million, then in most cases, I don't really have to give them any advice at all other than, hey, keep doing what you're doing and let's talk in, talk in a couple of years when you've grown a bit more. Um, so I think the, the plans and things you think about really have to be based on what you're actually trying to achieve. I think a lot of people, and, and the industry is definitely getting better for this. Previously, it would only be that like multi-billion dollar acquisitions were announced and most people couldn't really associate with it. But with the trend of, um, I guess, bootstrapping or just more founder-friendly investments now or kind of smaller smaller investments, not everyone needs to go out and raise hundred million dollars to build a business. You can raise five hundred thousand million, maintain strong ownership, and build a build a, a a great business. So I think more and more people now have I wouldn't say more realistic goals, but are aiming for levels that previously were it was almost like a so an industry social faux pas to say I want to sell for twenty million dollars ten years ago because people only heard about billion dollar deals. But now selling for that if you own 50%, 90%, 100% of the business uh, is a success. And I think in the industry, it's become much more, not that you really have to care what people think, but much more widely acceptable to to do that. So I think like planning, like get evaluation early um, and then use that to set a foundation of what you need to be doing from a, a target perspective. Because uh, like I said, the difference between going from 1 million to 2 versus 1 to 20 is quite significant. So you wouldn't give the same advice to, founder A versus founder B because they're going to need to do um, di different things. Hence why it's important to get evaluation early and also start establishing what your your goals are early. And that, that'll probably also change as well. I, I know for me, when I started FE, Ismail, who you know, my business partner, still laughs at me today because when he joined 
the business, I was convinced that, and this was true. My argument today is still that this was true at the time, that it was impossible to build a business beyond a million dollars in revenue because there were no companies in the industry doing a million dollars in revenue. And now we're significantly, fortunately, significantly past that, but the industry has grown as well. So I guess my personal expectations have also shifted, but you don't always know that at the time. Regarding the valuation point and getting that early, is that something that you should just do early and then don't worry about until you're going to ready to sell the business? Or is there is it healthy to get a valuation, you know, I, I don't know, uh, like every couple of years or something like that? I guess kind of with um, venture-backed companies, every time they raise, you know, they're getting a, a kind of new valuation. But I guess you deal with a lot of, you know, some venture back, but a lot of, you know, bootstrap companies. So what do you do if you're, if you're bootstrapped? Yeah, I mean, with us, we would encourage people to check in once a year. Um, in our case, if we've already valued your business once, um, the majority of the work is in the first valuation. The second time, it's not literally just updating a couple of numbers in a spreadsheet, but it's much easier than the first valuation. So I'd say yearly or at any material stage in the, the, the business. So I don't know, maybe you've, we saw some businesses in the kind of virtual event space, for example, which like 10 X in the last, in the last year. Um, so maybe for them, it was a, it was a, a good time. Um, or often if there's a change in circumstance, people like, like life happens. Um, sometimes you might need to kind of check in and see if maybe your number changes, maybe it goes up or maybe it goes down. Um, but say generally once a year is, is best practice. Um, most M and A firms like us want to build a long-term relationship. So we're more than happy to, it's free, more than happy to update evaluation every year. What's the, what's the sort of range of multiples that you, you would say just generally for like a bootstrap SaaS company that's, uh, well, uh, I, I don't know, let's say it's profitable or whatever, you, you know, are you doing it like uh, on a multiple of revenue, like five, seven X or something like that? Or what, what, what is in the market at the moment? Yes, generally speaking, with small SaaS companies, I say with most acquisitions, generally not talking revenue multiples. Revenue multiples tend to be cited if you're raising money. Uh, and it, it, it makes sense if you're raising money to talk revenue multiples because most companies raising money, I guess by the very nature of the fact they need money, they're not profitable. So if you're using like an EBITDA multiple, it makes no sense because it could be like making zero dollars. So in the raising capital world, it makes sense to use revenue multiples in the acquisition world. And this is a bit of a, again, a common misconception. The vast majority of businesses are sold on a multiple of either EBITDA or SDE. And they're effectively the same thing. EBITDA is like a common term. SDE is effectively the EBITDA adjusting for anything the owner takes out of the business. So your salary, your bonus, like distributions, all of that kind of stuff. Because obviously most business owners try run their business as close to zero as possible from a tax perspective. Um, but the reality is if you own that business, um, the, the actual EBITDA might be much higher if you weren't taking out a, a million a year in bonuses or whatever it, whatever it might be. Um, so generally a multiple of EBITDA or STE, um, multiples at the moment, anywhere from four on the lower end to 10 on the higher end. Um, but there are exceptions again, higher than that, lower than that, uh, 
depends on lots of different variables, like how much you're growing. Net revenue retention is an important one. Um, if you've got expansion revenue in there, then multiples can go up. Um, what the recent, more recent growth looks like, because um, to use like virtual event company as an example, you could have 10x last year, but I don't think many people believe virtual event companies are going to 10x next year. So growth rate is important, but it's also kind of expected future growth rate, which buyers and investors are, are looking at. So there's loads of variables that go into it. Um, and I'd say like we have a huge amount of data on, on past deals. So that, I guess that's kind of part of our value add because all of these deals are, are private. It's very difficult to find out publicly what a business sold for and understanding any any of the nuances of what went into the, the valuation. So I guess that kind of part of our value add is we, we have all that data in-house and we can use it to make sure we're very accurate with valuations when they come along. What what advice, like uh, final bits of advice, could you share with founders when thinking about uh, an exit? So I think, firstly, don't think about it too early. Make sure you're at least at the stage where you know you're all in on your business. So you probably have had to quit your job. Um, if assuming you have a have a job, it's obviously not impossible to run a business part time on the side while you have a job, um, and then sell it. But we're probably talking about a relatively small transaction, which we we would still help help with and look at, but. Might be talking hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand. So you call it like a micro acquisition. Um, so you can do that, but I would say, generally speaking, if you're planning, like think early what you're actually trying to achieve, um, and that's something that I definitely think you need to decide yourself. Uh, like, don't go to a conference and speak to ten people and then kind of take the average of their goals and then say that's yours, because um, you have to be like very honest with yourself. Like, if you Chances are, and I know this is kind of, a lot of people say this is like a toxic opinion or whatever, but chances are if you want to build a big business, you're going to have to work 60, 70 hours a week for a long period of time. I don't know too many people that have been successful who haven't put in like the, the hard work and the hours at, at some stage. If that if you're not up for that, then that's fine, but maybe you have to slightly change your goals. And maybe your goals are not necessarily financial. Like, I guess you and I are talking about it in a way that like, the only good outcome is like a big exit but for a lot of people they're happy building a a lifestyle business where the kind of team are paid well the team are happy you as the owner get paid well and like you're happy and you work two hours a day like that that's fine as well but that's something you have to decide it's not something that you can tell them or i can tell them or anything like that um yeah so think early what you want get an understanding of what your business is worth early because that would really help kind of determine what you need to to do to get to the next level. Um, I say they're the, they're the main things there'd be given a specific business. There'll be some very specific things that someone would need to, to do. Um, but it's hard to give any like generic advice because it really depends on kind of where they are now, what they're trying to get to. Cause the kind of things you need to work on when you're at say half a million ARR three people, it's completely different from what you need to work on when you have 50 people and you're at say, five million ARR. So generally completely different challenges from a, a leadership perspective. Awesome. Well, we come to the end of the podcast there, but a, a final question, Thomas. So um, somebody's listening to this podcast, they're thinking about exits or they've got some questions, like where can they find you online? How can they contact you? Yep. So if you want to, I guess, all social media platforms, like I'm active 
uh, the FE International team are active. Um, if you want to like speak to us directly, I'd go to our website, navigate to the appropriate section. So if you want to buy a business, go to the buy business section. If you want a free valuation, um, you can request a free valuation. And like I said, it's, it's never, first it's free. It's never too early. Um, and I would always suggest whether you want to sell with us or not, there's no obligation, like have that conversation early and it will help set expectations. Cause it may well be that the valuation you get is much lower or maybe much higher than you, you think. So it's always worth having that conversation early. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, Thomas, uh, thanks so much for being a great guest today in the, the SaaS Revolution show. Great to have you on. Um, looking forward to catching up when we can. Um, uh, likely be in, uh, uh, well, hopefully before actually uh, uh, Dublin next year, now that you can travel back to London uh, and also I can travel to the US. So um, that, that'll be on the cards. But uh, great stuff. Thanks so much, Thomas Mail, being a guest on the SaaS Revolution show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SaaS Doc conferences around the world.